Thanks for joining me today on Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted to welcome Jillian Rakuzin, who is the Executive Director of the Foundation for Social Connection and the Coalition to End Social Isolation and Loneliness. In her role, Julian is responsible for leading the direction of the coalition and the foundation's operations and programs focused on advancing social connection across the United States. Previously, Julian led enterprise go-to-go market strategy for Forest Therapeutics, a leading healthcare technology company and care management platform. Focused on improving health outcomes, Julian has partnered with several high-profile organizations, including leading healthcare systems, health plans, and federal agencies. Her passion for health promotion began at Tulane University's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine and continued to flourish at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, where she received her master's degree. Jillian is passionate about projects that foster healthy behaviors within communities and envision a more inclusive future with universal access to the support needed to be socially engaged in society. On a personal level, I, of course, enjoyed listening and talking to uh, Jillian. She has a perspective that I think is so important and really relates directly to the core of what this podcast is all about, which I'm really interested in, social connection. It's a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. Jillian Rakusen, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm delighted to be talking with you. You're the perfect guest for this uh, podcast, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts today. As always, we start the show by just asking people about, yeah, how they see their work as it relates to the chasm or, or chasms, and, and you're working on social, social isolation and, and loneliness. What do you see as, as the chasm or chasms in society? Well, thank you so much, Brian, for the question. And, you know, I think all of us experience social isolation and loneliness, some more than others. And of course, really since the pandemic, um, we all have an understanding of how this can impact all of our lives. Um, we've seen since the early 2000s rates of social isolation and loneliness rising, um, and that is across all ages, so not just for our older adults, but also for our school-age youth, for Gen Z and others. Um, and so really what we've been focusing on is how can we move the needle forward in research and advocacy and in innovative interventions to address social isolation and loneliness and build more socially connected communities across the country. Uh, A lot there. Uh, I want to get to some of those issues about why we're experiencing those trends. But just to begin with, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about the two words you're using, social isolation and loneliness. And I think most people would have some idea about that. But can you just explain what you mean by those terms? Absolutely. So social isolation is the objective measure of having two relationships um, you know, maybe thinking about the number of relationships that you have in your life, uh, um, or also the, the frequency in which you, you know, you are connecting with others. Um, and of course, loneliness is in the subjective measure. So really thinking about the feeling uh, of that difference between the relationships you'd like to have and what you feel that you do have. So we really think about social isolation again as that objective count and really thinking about loneliness um, as a subjective feeling. So I'm curious about this issue of social isolation, because I think it's super interesting. Are you saying it's, it's sort of, it, it's not subjective, it's objective in, in some respects, but how is it actually measured? Because if you're in society, if you're interacting with people, you can still feel lonely and isolated, even if you're in proximity. So how is that actually assessed? Great question. So there are many different validated tools to measure 
you know, loneliness as well as measuring social isolation. We actually, as a foundation and coalition, just worked on developing a proposal for NHANES, um, the National Health uh, Survey, to add additional measures of social isolation and loneliness and social support to make sure that we can continue to understand, um, you know, the prevalence of these conditions across the country and changes over time. Um, social isolation, as you think specifically, you know, we might ask, questions, uh, you know, such as, you know, how many close relationships do you have? You know, how often are you going out and um, attending clubs or other sort of activities in your community? Are you able to access food, you know, other, you know, community support without needing or, you know, on your own, basically, or are you engaging in those activities with other individuals? Um, So really thinking about know objectively what a person is going through through their their daily life. I'm wondering about, I mean, just personally, I feel quite lonely in society and it varies from time to time. I guess I'm wondering, yeah, how do you assess people when their situations and their perceptions can change potentially on a day-to-day basis? Mm. So another good question. I think the... The key there is thinking about point loneliness and then chronic loneliness, right? So, of course, we all might feel lonely um, at any points of our life, and, and maybe that is short-term and acute, or maybe that's chronic loneliness. And really where we get into trouble in terms of cognitive decline, physical ailments, etc., is with that chronic isolation and loneliness. And so that's really what we're, we're looking out for. I think, you know, many psychologists and other experts will agree that acute loneliness is, is typical of, of being human um, and also what helps us with our resiliency work um, as individuals. But really that chronic feeling of despair is, is what we're concerned about. I was listening to an interview recently with the current Surgeon General who indicated that extreme loneliness can be worse than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Is that true? And I guess I'm just curious if you could speak to the health consequences of loneliness, which we sometimes don't associate with poor health. Yes, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I just want to you know, you know, thank Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad, who is um, our scientific chair, actually the foundation, um, for her um, really foundational work in, in understanding the associated risks with um, you know, chronic loneliness and isolation and, and health outcomes. Um, and that's where that, that 15 cigarettes a day, that statistic is coming from. And also Dr. Murphy, our U.S. Surgeon General, has been a wonderful champion of this work. And um, we're, we're really grateful to have his support and his, his office's support in driving the, the movement forward. So I, I guess short answer is, is yes. We, we understand that um, as we look at the, um, the risks of chronic loneliness and isolation, um, and so associations with morbidity and mortality. Um, and we look at the likeness of morbidity and mortality as it relates to smoking. Um, that's where that connection is coming from, right? So as we're thinking about um, increase of uh, mortality and morbidity is, is really, you know, we're seeing worse outcomes than of, of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Why is that? I mean, what's the mechanism that leads to such poor health from social social isolation and, and loneliness? Yeah, so 
I, I'm not a scientist, and I'll be the first to to admit that. Um, and so Julianne is is really wonderful, and our, really our entire scientific advisory council is wonderful, um, and can can help talk about the science of it. But really, it, it's pointing to the uh, the factors that are are driving really high cortisol rates. Um, you know, thinking about um, how it changes, you know, inflammation, blood pressure, our gene expression, um, you know, neuroendocrine functioning, all of these things can be, uh, you know, can be, you know, basically changed based on stress, depression, you know, thinking about uh, hopelessness um, that might come with feelings of, of loneliness. And so it's really thinking about, um, you know, the direct and indirect pathways by which the you know social disconnection can influence disease morbidity and mortality so we know this is a, an emerging and serious public health concern you mentioned earlier some trends can you just speak a little bit more about that how have the trends in loneliness and social isolation changed and why is it so prevalent today do you think yeah thank you so you know we actually just came out recently with a report around um you know, the intersection of social connection and education sector. We're actually looking sector by sector and developing key reports, understanding stakeholders, um, uh, you know, landscape of the evidence and thinking through promising practices for intervention strategies. Um, and in the education report, we, we saw, you know, a stat that was, um, you know, school loneliness in the U.S. has increased almost 20% in the last 20 years. And a big piece of that happening, you know, after 2012. And, of course, we saw a big jump um, in, in their impact as many students were sent home to, um, to do school in the home during COVID. We saw from Cygnus' recent work that Gen Z is reporting the loneliest generation in, in the high 70%, um, as well as millennials also reporting high loneliness. We know from some additional data from AARP and others that, uh, you know, 24% of older adults in the U.S. are considered to be socially isolated. And thinking about increase over time, adults with poor physical and mental health experience higher rates and some rates increasing, you know, even over the last five years. Um, so this is, is really all trending uh you know, upwards into the right, which is, is not what we want. We want to think about how can we make sure that we're addressing each of these key uh, po- population segments with interventions that make the most sense for them and, you know, as, as and tailored interventions, I should say, so that we can address this and, and move those trends down. And I want to get to those interventions in a minute, but I do want to linger here a bit on some of these questions around the drivers of these issues. The COVID situation and the pandemic clearly caused an issue, but this situation predates the pandemic. And I guess I'm still just curious what's going on. I did read some studies that suggested that people have far fewer friends. They have, uh, you know, they go over to people's house for dinner far fewer times. They're not as active in the public sphere in terms of voting and and, uh, community volunteering. I guess I'm just curious from your work, do you have any sense about what is causing all of that? I mean, there's some obvious drivers of that, but what, what do you what do you point to? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big question. It's one that many people are trying to, to think through and, and, you know, thinking about the drivers of decline and you pointed out a lot of them. Um, you can see that our nation is becoming more divisive. You can see that people are less involved in clubs and groups than ever before. 
um, not looking to places of faith to participate in um, or to go to for community as much as we've seen in the past. Um, you know, I think some might say it's easy to claim to, to, you know, put the onus on individuals, but we really want to drive systemic change, you know, thinking about how can sectors of society come together from a systems policy and environmental, uh, you know, lever to really enact that change. So thinking about our schools, our parks, our um, safe, you know, communities, you know, how can each of those be a player in, in turning this around? And so I know it's not a direct answer to the question. I think uh, you pointed out a lot of the, the challenges that we're facing. And um, I think really the next step is thinking through, you know, how can we re- be rebuilding at the community level? You know, a lot of the work recently has been done over the last, you know, 15 years or so on the individual well, you know, every individual is different. They're going to come to interventions differently. How can we start to invest more in the community um, to think through creating welcoming spaces that people can feel like they belong? Is this just a U.S. problem or is this a trend across the globe? Unfortunately, it's not. It's a trend that we're seeing across the globe. You know, we are also a part of the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection and the Foundation and Coalition that has a the U.S. members, and that's a, a, a consortium of about 15 countries, different um, you know, similarly situated organizations in each of those countries. And, and we are, you know, working really closely with our global partners to understand what is happening in those countries, what is the avenue that they're taking to enact change and some of the work that they're leading. You know, we know that the U.K. and Japan have been you know, extremely um, forward thinking in the um, appointment of ministers of loneliness. We know that the WHO and the UN are working on developing a commission on social connection and thinking about an international scientific board so that we can bring, you know, the great minds around social connection together and, and really work together to solve this, this problem. So this is by any measure a, a public health crisis. Do you think it's being taken at that level? Do you think most people see loneliness or associate loneliness with a, a public health problem? Or is this a problem that remains kind of obscured in, in public culture? You know, our goal is to, is to get there. Absolutely. I think, um, I think we're at the precipice of something really big. I think, you know, of course, as you mentioned, loneliness and isolation has been a problem people have been facing for a long time, even before the pandemic. But, you know, that, that um, you know, it really woke the world up to understanding what it feels like to be alone. Um, and I mean, you know, socially isolated and, and to have those intense feelings of loneliness of not being able to be out in society. You know, we've been really working really closely with our federal partners as well as our local partners. Um, to think through how can we continue to bring awareness to the issue um, and really think of it as a public health priority. I know I mentioned Dr. Julianne Holt-Lunstad. She released an article, um, you know, last year, you know, talking about why social connections should be thought of as a public health priority. You know, I'm happy to, to share that with your, your listeners. I think it's, it's really critical for us to be thinking about just like obesity, just like 
other public health issues. What are the guidelines that we should be developing that we can set forward for our nation, for our, our localities? Um, and what are the toolkits that we can provide local leaders to enact those strategies? So those are the things that we're thinking of in order to, to make this more of a priority you know, on the docket of, of, of what leaders are working on. Well, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to get that article. I, I am curious, uh, just personally, I know that men are more likely to be lonely in our society than women, at least in the U.S. And I think that's interesting in and of itself. But I'm also wondering, are there other demographics that experience loneliness that we're not thinking about that also need a lot of attention and addressing? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it's, it's a lot of similar communities that we see are hurt by um, other conditions. Those that have lower socioeconomic status, we see individuals who have disabilities or chronic physical and mental health conditions, caregivers. We're seeing new moms and parents as a key group that's emerging, uh, veterans, immigrant communities, those that might live in rural areas or far from, from others, and in children, adolescents, those who have weaker family structures and support, or don't feel like they have that belongingness at school. So, but we are really seeing that, you know, it encapsulates many, many different people, you know, LGBTQ plus and, and others that, that might have more challenges feeling that, that feeling of belonging in, in their communities that we want to make sure that we're, we're thinking through how to, to address and, and support those communities specifically. Is this situation sort of making it into the public sphere? I mean, are there examples you could point to in like television or movies where social isolation and loneliness are being portrayed in ways that are bringing this to more and more people? That's a great question. One thing I'll say is that a, a positive trend we're seeing is a lot of intervention work focused on intergenerational connection. So young people and old people or people from many different generations. And I think we are seeing this a lot more in media and television and movies. You know, uh, we, we work with a, an organization and, um, you know, Eunice Nichols, who leads that organization, brought up, you, you know, the, the show Hacks. It's a show, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a, about um, an older comedian and a, a younger writer and kind of their, their life on the road. And I think, you know, thinking about how connections might be, you know, maybe brought to light in, in, um, in new and different ways and thinking perhaps even just outside your, your own uh, friend group or your community and how you can bridge connection with others that, that might be or think differently than you. So I'll have to keep thinking about some of the other, you know, uh, more socially connected or, 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 you know, movie showing disconnection, but I will say that, of course, at the heart of, of many of uh, film and television, books, et cetera, are relationships. And, you know, we really think about social connection as being that continuum of quality, functional and structural relationships, right? So what are the structure uh, of the relationships in my life? Do I have a mom, a dad? Do I have a, a doctor, a this, you know, another friend, et cetera? Do I have, um, what functions do those relationships serve for me? Um, and then what is the quality uh, of those relationships? And, and, you know, is it positive or negative? And each of those components are going to, you know, are going to play a role in my social connectedness. Yeah, and thank you for the recommendation. Uh, I think it's interesting because I, I do see a lot of films that really showcase 
isolation, but I'm not sure that people are sort of putting that together with the public health health crisis we're currently in. But but thank you for that, and and thank you also for the work. I mean, this has been a nice introduction to just the problems and the severity of the issue you're speaking very authoritatively. I'm really excited now to shift a little bit and to think about what we can do about all of this. But to start, I would really be curious. You've used the term connection many times. How do you think about that term? What does it mean? How should we think about it? Yeah, you know, for for us, we really think about. I know, I know, I just said, you know, thinking about it along a continuum, um, the extent to which one feels, you know, social, socially connected depends on, you know, their connections to others through, you know, existence of relationships, a sense of connection that results from, you know, perceived support or inclusion. And then, you know, that quality piece, the um, positive and negative aspects of social relationships. And that could be, you know, marital quality, relationship strain, you know, again, that social inclusion or exclusion that I that I mentioned prior. So that that's really how we think about social connection. And as we think about it more as it relates to communities, I think that's where we bring in the additional sectors and thinking through how are um, sectors enabling connection from a you know a, a system uh, environment and po- and policy level. So I've been interested in this topic of connection for a long time. And personally, I've been trying to find connection. It's actually quite difficult, I've been finding personally, and I think others as well, based on the evidence. How can people find connection? Because I think I heard you say earlier that it's not necessarily just an individual issue. It's not just, I'm not looking hard enough. It's that it's it's societal in some way. So if it's not up to the individual, how can we move forward with social connection if it's not clear what an individual should do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and we, we really stand by that. You know, we, we believe that social isolation is not a personal choice or individual problem, but it's really one that's rooted in community design and social norms and systemic injustices. Um, and so that's why we've tried to take a systemic approach in thinking through solutions and strategies We've worked really closely with an organization called Healthy Places by Design, which released a report called Socially Connected Communities and talks about, you know, what are the strategies for public spaces, for transportation, for housing, um, for community-led solutions that they can, um, you know, employ to create more socially connected communities. I think that, the you know, as we think about individuals taking, the, you know, control of their own, you know, health and well-being, I think it's, it's really that self-reflection of what piece are they missing in that continuum, right? And, and maybe that's with the help of a, a supporter, but thinking through, is it really the, you know, the structural piece? Is it the functional piece or is it the quality piece? Or maybe it's more than one. And then thinking about the, the interventions that, you know, fit that best. You know, we've seen some great individual level interventions such as, you know, volunteerism, um, thinking about CBT and other mindfulness and, and therapeutic, um, you know, interventions. But we've also seen a lot of great work happening it, with interpersonally in terms of peer-to-peer relationship building, um, support groups, um, clubs, etc. And then also thinking through more on an uh, organizational level, how can workplaces and schools be thinking about um, developing policies and systems for connection, um, you know, really to, to make it a more welcoming and inviting space. 
So you've just mentioned a bunch of uh, really interesting interventions and you've used these terms strategies and, and solutions. I'm wondering, can you speak to a couple of specific examples, either a city or a community or a workplace? How do they yeah, move this forward to create the kind of space that people can feel connected in? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of the strategies are things that are going to sound familiar to people because we don't believe that needs to be starting from scratch. We believe that you can utilize existing practices and programs and just build off of those with the intentional, with the intentionality around social connection. So for example, um, you know, creating or developing a referral system for local hospitals to help patients access social connection resources. Likely, your your hospital is your local hospital already has a referral system as it relates to other SDOH social determinants of health um, indicators or even other community supports. But why not? There, why can't we think about something more specific for social connection resources? and making sure that there is, you know, a range of, of options for people to um, reach out to and so that their, their providers can help them connect them to, to, the, to the help that they need. That's one example. Another might be around, um, you know, passing a law allowing residents to plant community gardens in vacant lots, vacant lots, excuse me. You know, we've seen a, a big uptake in community gardens and, you know, open streets for for you know, uh, walking and things like that coming out of COVID and, and even before then, but really creating spaces in the community that are open, that are accessible, um, that allow people to see each other and be with each other, we think is, is really critical. And I think, you know, as we think about schools, you know, we're working with a couple different organizations now that are creating and have created curriculum for schools around social connection, um, thinking about reducing stigma, even with just talking about it at school and, and thinking about how to engage students in, um, you know, in, you know, we, one of our partners beyond differences has a, you know, no kid eats alone day. You know, how can we make sure that we're engaging students so that they're leading the charge on those efforts as well? Um, so those are just some, some initial examples. No, those are all fantastic examples. I think I, what I'm hearing from you is that there has to be a lot of interventions. And so it seems like a lot of things have to happen in any given community to really overcome this social problem and public health problem. Do you have any examples of a place that has done this sort of in a way that intersects? So there's a lot of different things going on at the same time that's kind of a model for other places? Or is this just still emerging as a response and solutions are coming sort of slowly? Yeah, so I would say that there are many, you know, many communities already doing incredible work. I think the coordination is a piece that, um, you know, we're thinking through how to, you know, best support. We are actually working on a project right now, uh, building toolkits I mentioned a little bit earlier for local leaders, and those could be formal or informal, you know, those, you know, might be mayors, city council people, business owners, community-based organization leaders, um, to provide them with the tools they need to deploy strategies um, for social connection. And we're, we're going on a bit of a roadshow, learning from different communities around the country in, um, you know, what does social connection mean for their community? What does their community context look like and feel like? And what are the, the you know, the solutions that we can prototype and co-develop? And then thinking from, from those conversations, how can we build the tools to support them and the sustainability of those um, initiatives? 
So I, I think there's a lot of great work happening. I think it's more around the coordination and our biggest, uh, you know, suggestion or encouragement there is to create local coalitions. Um, we, as you know, the coalition to end social isolation and loneliness, work on a national level with many different organizations. But we also have many local coalition partners. Northern California, for example, Texas is another example. Connecticut's doing great work. Massachusetts task force. So we know that there are localities also focusing on how can we bring together, coordinate, and elevate the work um, so that we can, you know, help our constituents best. So if you were to talk to just a regular community member in, in any given community and, and they were interested in all of this, what would you tell them about how they can contribute to this process, this coalition work? What, what can they do? Great question. Well, I will say, firstly, if someone's looking for resources, um, findhelp.com, um, also AARP and Commit to Connect have great resources online for individuals to look for things in their own zip codes. Um, we also have a lot of resources on our own website. So I, um, you know, I ask uh, individuals to, to please go there and, and, and look for, for different supports in the community. Um, in terms of getting involved, you know, we have uh, our policy agenda was just released this week, our 2023-2024. And of course, that's for our federal, federal advocacy work. But we also work with a lot of local leaders and um, partners to think through how can we advocate on a more local or state level. We have our Global Loneliness Awareness Week work happening in June. June 12th to the 16th is Global Loneliness Awareness Week. We'll be hosting an activation at the Capitol, but also many different organizations and individuals are hosting events in their own communities. So I would, you know, challenge them to think through What's a, an, an event? It could be as small as hosting a community dinner, uh, a potluck, or, you know, maybe volunteering with a friend that they can do during Global Loneliness Awareness Week to really activate around um, the important uh, time of year where we're really focused on committing to action. So those would be some initial recommendations. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And, and we'll post some things on the website that, that you can provide for us for our listeners. So thank you for that. I guess I want to ask you personally, are, are you lonely? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I always share when, um, when people ask how I got involved in this work, when, uh, when the pandemic hit, I was living in 500 square feet in a big city by myself, working in the same space that I was sleeping. I was working out. I was doing all the things about life. It was not the first time, but it was a time where I felt very chronically lonely and, you know, I, I felt like I had, I have a great support system, you know, great friends, great family, but I was still feeling this way. And I, and I wanted to, and I, and I had this thought that of course there are many others that are likely experiencing the same thing. So that's one thing. I also have, uh, you know, two amazing grandparents who are in their mid eighties and they live you know, in a, in a beautiful home, but they are now pretty homebound. Um, and so I'm seeing sort of understanding for the first time, the challenges, um, that they're experiencing was feeling very removed from, from life and, um, and working to, to think through how I can make sure and our family can make sure that we're keeping them connected to our lives and to, you know, the world outside of their home so that they feel, uh, that real sense of belonging and, and also 
social connections, they don't fall into that isolating feeling. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. I guess I, I also wanted to ask, uh, related to all of this, is there a stigma associated with being lonely or socially isolated? Absolutely. I think, unfortunately, there is. I think what I will say is I really commend Gen Z and our younger generations for being so open about talking about mental health. For me, I, I you know, I personally have had um, mental health you know, conditions and struggles through my life that I have felt very confident and comfortable talking about, but I know for many others that it's, it's a challenge. And um, for me, I, it's a privilege that I feel like I can talk about it openly. And for others, I know that it's, they don't have that same privilege. And so I, yeah, I do commend the younger generations, I think are talking about it a lot more in public spaces, are much more comfortable talking about what's going on, you know, with their mental and physical selves. And I do see that our trend is, is towards a more open, um, holistic well-being, um, you know, notion of, of being a human. And that, that, that has many different components and, and there might be good days, there might be bad days, there might be, um, you know, bad, you know, weeks or months. And those are okay to talk about. I guess I wanted to ask you a question because I think, you know, we have this hyper focus on individuality in our society that's at the core of our constitution and so forth. And so what do you say to people who just argue that, yeah, we're just a disaggregated society and that there's just always going to be isolation and loneliness as a byproduct of having, yeah, individual freedoms? It's a hard one. I mean, my, my response would be that I believe the human condition includes connection and that we need connection to live and to thrive. And I believe that it might look different for different people, of course, what, what that level or continuum looks like for them. But for each of us at, at our, you know, at, if we look at our basic needs, connection is one of them. And it, it, I think it'll always be there. Um, and that's why, you know, you know, we didn't really get into the, the digital components, but, you know, it's wonderful what technology can do for us, but we don't want to view it as a replacement for in-person connection. Um, and I, I do see a place for us to have, you know, face-to-face, to have hands holding hands, um, to really be sharing stories with each other for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing that up because one of the main contributing factors that many people point to to isolation is technology. And that's Netflix, but it's also staring at your phone all day and, and instead of connecting with people. I guess that raises some other questions about just this, the, you know, our society. Can we have basically the same configuration of our society and increase connection? Or do we need to really change what we mean by society and community? I think our components are there. We have amazing community leaders. We have community-based organizations doing great work. I think it comes down to the awareness to having the building blocks of how to approach this systematically and, and also investment, right? And that means from, you know, public funds, from private funds, corporations thinking through how can they all play a role in driving the movement forward. So 
I think the pieces are there. It's just about putting them together. Um, I do. I have three last questions that are sort of personal. But before I ask that, I have one last question to put you, really put you on the spot to ask a question that's really unanswerable. But that is, if you could make any decisions, if you had total control and could change things, what were the, what are the, some of the top things you would do immediately to address this this problem of social isolation and loneliness to create connection? What, what would be the interventions that you would prioritize as the most important? Hmm. There's so many. <laughs> well, this goes, one I'll say goes a little bit against what we were just saying, but universal broadband is something I think we absolutely need in this country. And, you know, just because you can't get online, it, it, just, it, it shouldn't be a barrier for connection. So that's one thing. Two, I would say incorporating curriculum on social connection in schools and talking about this from a very young age and normalizing feelings of loneliness and, and isolation and thinking through how we can continue the conversation with, with young leaders around this work and, and all young people. And I, I guess I would say the, the last piece is, is thinking through how we can continue to drive funds to community-based organizations that are serving older adults in their homes, such as Meals on Wheels or, or other amazing community supports that have been doing this great work for a very long time on shoestring budgets <laughs> and, and, and really are thinking through how they can best support their own communities. Um, so I, I would say those are some key things, of course, from the policy perspective, you know, all of that drives up to thinking about what are, um, what it, what is a nationally coordinating body that can take this on in the United States? Um, is there an agency that can be, um, sort of tasked with owning this work and really being held responsible for driving it forward. Um, can we add those measures of isolation, loneliness, and social support to our national surveys so that we can actually track uh, the great work that's going on and, and how you know rates are improving over time? And can we continue to pilot new interventions um, for key segments of the population that are feeling this most. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You're obviously an expert and very passionate. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I just <laughs> want to end uh, on some on some personal questions. And I, I want to start by asking you, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest is being able to talk to all of our partners, you know, day in and day out. I see an incredible community of individuals and organizations that are focused on addressing this problem. And that ranges again from you know, large nonprofit for profit, you know, thinking through local small institutions, you know, across the board, cross sector. Um, they all want to play a role in addressing this and, and creating a better you know, space for us to connect. And so I, I think the key thing is just, feeling like there is so much activity and passion for creating a better future, um, a more socially connected future for all. Do you have any examples of something you've read or heard or listened to or seen recently that has made you think in new ways or more deeply about the work you do? Um, so many things. Uh, one that continues to stick with me is something that, um, you know, 
many people have have been working on this term, but recently it was used in a um, the equitable long term recovery and resiliency plan that um, a government working group focused on post COVID resiliency, and at, they have a framework: the seven vital conditions of living, and in the center is you know, civic muscle and belonging or, or civic muscle and, um, yeah, and belonging. And um, one of the terms that they use throughout is this idea of a multi-solver, of something that can solve more than one and address more than one issue in society. And I, I, I it really has changed my perspective of how we can continue to start or can continue to, to think about addressing social isolation and loneliness from a systemic lens you know, there's already great work happening in investment in housing and education and other spaces. So how can we use those strategies and thinking about multi-solving for social connection as well? And then lastly, I'm just curious, like this can be overwhelming, a lot of difficult challenges and problems. What do you do in your own personal life that brings you joy and, and gives you a sense of, of, of joy and, and pleasure? Yeah, so... You know, I, I feel very fortunate to, to lead these two organizations and have an incredible team. I, I also uh, am a fitness instructor, which is something I've been doing for almost 10 years now. It's just a personal passion of mine is, is health and well-being. And, you know, in college when I was looking to make some additional money on the side, I, I thought, let me take a training and how to, to be a group fitness instructor um, the rest is history. I've taught in probably five different cities around the country. Um, and uh, now I get to you know, work with people on a, a daily basis and think through how I can make them feel strong, more empowered, um, and just ready to take on their day. So it brings me lots of joy. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. And I really appreciate you sharing. And thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been just a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot. And I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. I hope you have a, a good rest of your day. What a fantastic conversation. I am just ecstatic that we had the opportunity to talk to Jillian. She is such a force in the world of social connection and overcoming loneliness and isolation. I really respect her work and, and really enjoyed talking with her. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. And thanks to Daniel Phillips and Cody Bayless and Chris Flores as the executive producers. And thanks, as always, to Anodyne Diversion for the music. Really appreciate you tuning in. I hope you can listen again. Take care.